0: This is TDPS. Hi, I'm Eric Shaw Quinn, and everyone here at TDPS would like to congratulate my co-host and best friend, Christopher Rice, also known as steamy romance author, C. Travis Rice, on the publication of Sapphire Storm, the third novel in his Sapphire Cove series. Sapphire Storm is the drama-filled tale of a forbidden romance that exposes old secrets and incurs the wrath of the powerful and the famous. It went on sale March 7th. Along with the first two entries in the series, Sapphire Sunset and Sapphire Spring, it's available wherever e-books are sold. Congratulations, C. Travis Rice, and congratulations, Christopher.
1: That's right, at facebook.com slash the dinner party show. No, I meant in the car. Hi, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you're listening to TDPS Presents Christopher. And Eric. Okay, we're, we're doing something. I mean, it's not special, necessarily. We are breaking up a, a pretty much talked about. Long true crime documentary series into two episodes of our podcast. We're going to do episodes one and two this week, and then three and next four week next will week. Will be three
0: and four next week.
1: Yeah. Uh, the series is called "Last Call: When a Serial Killer Stalked Queer New York." It's streamable on Max, known to most of us as HBO Max before they changed. Or the name.
0: just HBO, because for heaven's sake, right.
1: Um, there's a reason we picked this to do on this specific date, and it's because the, some of the facts of this case— And the time period. —and the time period remind us of the murder of Billy Newton. And if you're new to the podcast, you maybe are not aware that this was previously an unsolved homicide here in Los Angeles that we shined an enormous amount of attention to and assisted in the solving of. We generated a tip which was used by another individual— uh, citizen detective, if you will, uh, who went off and essentially um, found the killer, Clark Williams. He appeared on our podcast. Uh, it, it,
0: we It started with getting the attention of the Los Angeles yes. Police Department, which got the attention of other people, which got the attention of Rachel Mason, who's right. a local documentarian, another mm-hmm. queer person from the community. And she... Posted something that got the atten- in the commu- in Billy's original community that got the attention of Clark Clark Williams right who was realized that he was like in the same graduating class or you know had a lot of common right uh, elements with it and we, they've all been on the show um, but it kind of it started with us talking about this thirty year old unsolved case Absolutely. of this uh, you know this tragic case of them finding the. The severed head of this poor young man in a dumpster here in West Hollywood. Yeah, and uh, it was thirty years ago, maybe longer. I think today.
1: I think it was. If, it, if it was, today was not the day his body was found, it was the day he went missing. Fish, uh, the last day he was it seen was, alive. It was
0: the day before Halloween. Yeah. right.
1: Because Halloween was. It, the Sunday before Halloween in 1990, and they found him on Halloween. Or? They found him the next morning. I so think it still was still before Halloween. Because people who had seen him last in Rage Nightclub here in West Hollywood, uh, one of whom got in touch with the show, said they were discussing whether or not to go to the police about what they had seen at the Halloween festival. They were having that discussion, right? And they were yeah,
0: and they were decorating while he was mm-hmm. the, while they were in the in the club. And yeah, did we we. Developed. We got a tip line. We set yeah. up a um, an email address for people to send uh, tips into. And one thing led to another. And like I don't know that we can take credit for solving it, but
1: well, the, the case they, is
0: solved now. And keep, everybody who's come on has said they wouldn't have been that yeah. we were the reason that they got interested in the case.
1: Well, Detective John Lamberti, who got in touch with us after hearing our first podcast, said... Which I'm still blown away by. He said here in this studio that he'd nev- he would have put that file back on the shelf and possibly not thought about it again. It's a 30-year-old cold case. Unless he had Googled the name Billy Newton and found our podcast and seen that there were people out in the community that were still trying to solve this thing. He said if he hadn't found our podcast... We both burst into tears when he said it. Absolutely, so, all of the episodes we did over the last few years covering Billy have been gathered in one place. They're available at thedinnerpartyshow.com. If you scroll just a little ways down our homepage, there you'll see the hub, as we call it, with all of our Billy episodes. There's a there's a photograph of Billy, a, a missing persons flyer, or I'm sorry, a wanted information wanted flyer that went up with his picture around West Hollywood, which was. Uh, graciously donated to our efforts by the One Institute and Archives here in West Hollywood. So, if you if you want to learn more about the case, if you want to follow along with us, it was quite a journey, and it seemed right. Bef- the, it's always darkest before the dawn, right? Like Lamberti came on our show and said, "I don't, I don't have anything else. You know, we've exhausted every avenue. They had looked into a lead we had generated that possibly a man matching Jeffrey Dahmer's description had left the bar with Billy before he was." His body parts were found in a dumpster. He was like, barring a miracle, and lo and behold, there was a miracle. The miracle happened, yeah. and it is—it's
0: yeah. quite the journey, and it's all pretty well documented in those episodes. And so, if you're interested at all in the case, that's—we um, recommend it to you. One of the major reasons we focused on it was that it, we didn't want Billy to be forgotten. Right. We wanted to call attention to this unsolved tragedy of this poor young man who was thrown away like garbage and there's some real similarities yes in the case and there's also some yeah unfortunate coincidences in 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 the case as well as which you'll see as we as we talk through the, these episodes it was a good i was you were impressed i was pleased yeah. with this with yeah. this documentary i thought they did a nice job of telling the story without much more than telling the story, I didn't right. feel like I was being preached to, or that it was too skewed. But I felt like the facts were there, and the mm-hmm. story was being told. And then next week, I mean, it it kind of is an amazing. Next week is the exciting twist conclusion, yeah, totally unexpected twist conclusion um, to the case. So right. it, it is, it is a. It, I think it makes for a nice. Um, Two-volume set, as we're talking about it. True Crime Detectives Show, True true Crime TV Clubs, first two-volume set.
1: So when we were in the midst of talking about the Billy case, this book, Last Call, by Elon Green, which is the basis for this documentary, came out. It was published, and it was published by a major publisher, which I thought was impressive because it was about a serial killer who stalked gay men in New York City. Bodies turning up in body bags, and I remember picking up the book and thinking, "Was well, this our guy? Like, did he did he have a West Coast operation?" You know? I know we did that with a lot. I can't remember. We'll get into the story of of what what actually happened with the Last Call Killer, as he came to be called, as you just said, um, and then we'll talk about the 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 Billy parallels, if you will, right? As it's- uncomfortable as some of them are, yeah.
0: All um, right, uh, unfortunate. I think yes. I would say.
1: Episode one, it's entitled Peter, then Thomas. 1992, we're in Burlington County, New Jersey. And I
0: would like to say that that is one of my favorite things about this series, is mm-hmm. that it focuses on the victims of these crimes.
1: Yes. That
0: was what we tried to do with Billy, and that's very much what the series, and I assume the novel, or the novel, the the. The, the, book. the book yeah did. it it's not a novel it is a true crime story
1: so unfortunately so. unfortunately it is the truth indeed and i think that's in this case what we're, we're going to find is these victims are all windows into gay life in the late 80s and early 90s which is a period that both of us remember 1992, we're in Burlington County, New Jersey. We're introduced to Chief Thomas McCauley, who is a former detective for the New Jersey State Police. He tells us that he was notified by some Department of Sanitation employees that a human head had been discovered in the back of their garbage truck. We also meet Nick Theodos, who's a former detective with New Jersey State Police, he tells us that one of the bags in the truck caught on the edge as they were throwing it off and split open, and that is how they found the body parts inside. They found legs. They found, excuse me, they found the legs in a different location. Um, the body parts appear to have been washed and then wrapped in newspaper after having been cut into seven pieces, and this is across several different bags that they discovered.
0: At several different locations. Several different locations. Along a- stretch of the highway. The,
1: I guess the trash collection was for this turnpike, truck, right. Was the
0: New Jersey Turnpike or something? It was, I can't remember. It was along some particular yeah. noteworthy New Jersey highway.
1: There were other items, though, in there. One, one body part was wrapped in a shower curtain. Another one was wrapped in a Liz Claiborne fitted sheet. There was a saw. There was gloves, as well as the victim's briefcase, wallet, and driver's license. The victim is identified as Thomas McCauley, we meet his daughter, Tracy O'Shea, who is now grown and being interviewed. Uh, she was 19 when her father was killed. She says she sensed that there was always more to him. Uh, despite being married to her mother, he loved Broadway and Hollywood glamour. Well, I don't know that that rules out being married to her mother. I don't know what she was like. Unless
0: sure. well, she just hated Broadway Maybe or she
1: did. I, know. I was trying to condense my notes there. Then it became unintentionally problematic. Um and then he went on uh, to a business on a business trip to New York and never came home that was the last time she ever saw him on July 7th 1992 he has done a presentation at the World Trade Center he goes out to lunch after and eventually he ends up at the townhouse pub which is where he sometimes went for male companionship and this is a gay bar Of the type that I kind of feel like doesn't even exist anymore.
0: When I was young and dinosaurs ruled the earth and I lived in New York, this is what we called a wrinkle room. Because we were young and horrible, and now I am the person that I was talking about, well, and I don't feel bad about it because it's still very much the. But, but it was it about sounds lovely. It was about men—a men of a certain age—how to sort of. It was yeah. a much more sort of gentleman's clubby. Yes, of, there was um, rounds and uh, ta- townhouse, and I, I was getting the impression that the townhouse may even still be there. There was mm-hmm. so much uh, photography of it, and several places around. That were, that's where you went. Right. That there was, it was a certain, I love Don't Tell Mamas, but that was a little younger um, and a little more a mixed crowd. You would
1: sing show tunes around the piano at Don't Tell Mama, but right? one of the places, yeah.
0: But one yeah. of the places that we're going to talk about during the course True. of the thing is also um, another. So piano bar usually and a bar, but it was a, it was a less, it wasn't Uncle Charlie's. It wasn't yeah. deafening disco music playing it wasn't a dark it wasn't dark it was dimly lit but flattering
1: yeah or Barracuda um, was another one yeah that I went to that was just loud and sort yeah. of yeah and th- that was
0: great too but it yeah. was, and we loved it but there was also this this was a certain kind of gentleman's club that catered to a very specific kind of gentleman which apparently Mr Mulcahy was. Uh, was. And
1: this is where he went when he was interested in being around those types of gentlemen. Where uh, We interviewed Douglas Gibson, who uh, alleges to be the last person to be seen with him. A mutual friend had tried to pair the two of them up at the bar. It didn't really take because Thomas was more intrigued with somebody else. Douglas looked over his shoulder and saw a gentleman standing near the piano that hadn't been there before. He had brown hair. He was in a polo shirt. He was nondescript. Two to three days later at six in the morning, detectives from the 17th precinct arrive at Douglas's door informing him that he was the last person to see Thomas and that his body parts have been found on the side of a New Jersey roadway in those trash bags we described earlier. Tracy says the response from her family was to have a session with a therapist and that's where they told Tracy that her father had lived a secret gay life. His mother was aware she had previously found evidence of it, and they had made a choice to go to couples therapy together. So this is where we're going to get into this. And this it's important for this story to keep the detectives from the different jurisdictions straight because we're going to get really significant
0: as we go along, because despite the fact that. Apparently he was last seen and maybe even met the person he was last with in New York. The body was found in New Jersey.
1: And the question that we will come back to again and again is what, if anything, did New York-based detectives do to aid in this case? Right. So New Jersey detectives in this moment contact the Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project in New York City, which gets referred to as AVP for the rest of this special. So if we start saying AVP, that's why. Uh, they interview the woman I would like to be assigned. Because it's easier to type. Exactly. That's correct. <laughs> That's correct. There was a lot to type. This was four episodes. Absolutely. They interview the woman who I want to be assigned to my case, if anything bad ever happens I mean. to me. B. Hansen, formerly with the Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project in New York City. Is on time, and she is not having it. She is not having anything, but she's also not overwrought. No. She's not, you know. Yeah, there is no no bullshit B. We're gonna call no her. bullshit B. I love that. I hope she finds out we called her that. She was great. Um,
0: Matt Foreman was also great and very well spoken, and I think did a great job at, as part of ABP as well, activating people, getting the word out. But I, it seemed to touch him more emotionally even now than it did be. She was very much involved and it was important to her, but she had that straight ahead, just the facts, ma'am, kind of approach.
1: So we're being introduced, uh, introduced, excuse me, to various members of the Gay and Lesbian Anti-Violence Project in New York City. We've talked about B. Hansen and Matt Foreman. We also meet David Wertheimer. And Andy Hum, who's a co-host of a show that was running on local television at the time called Gay USA, and boy, they didn't pull any punches. I'm either. telling you, they were these people were these were like the people who were the activists when I came out of the closet. They were they were plainly dressed. They were they if they were a,
0: dressed at all.
1: <laughs> they had a corporate vibe about them, and they were not fucking around, and they were not mincing words. And they, and they, were, they were on local access television. Exactly. Because nobody else was talking to us. Then. Absolutely. But what the project has been dealing with is a pipe bomb that went off inside Uncle Charlie's, which you mentioned earlier. Yes. Uh, there was a shooting at the Ramrod Bar. Jesus. The AIDS crisis is raging. And something that they say later, so forgive me if I repeat it later because I know it's in the notes, is that there was a sense that the straight community was stepping up on AIDS, but they were not stepping up on anti-gay violence, which was proliferating and being driven by all the stigma and the, and the rhetoric around the AIDS epidemic. Yes. So, Okay. So, uh, B, no bullshit B, becomes the AVP's point person to the New Jersey police. And she uh, says to us that the townhouse was really an uptown bar that was disconnected from the rest of the gay community. And they show the map of New York and they draw a line. Which I really love. Like, New York is like
0: <laughs> 10 miles wide and 30 miles long. Like, it is like Manhattan anyway. is. And it's like, oh, for heaven's sakes, guys, you can walk from one of these places to the other. Uh, yeah, it was yeah. it was further up the island, for <laughs> heaven's sakes.
1: But it's that it's the gay that, community stops at Forty Fifth Street. But like, it's, what? It's that clickishness that she was talking mm-hmm. about. It's that typism. You know oh, what yeah. I mean? It was like you said. It was a wrinkle room. You were yeah. down in Uncle Charlie's. Absolutely
0: and, in the village, yeah. and then the village was the village. And yeah. oh those you know those closet cases uptown in the Upper East Side, like whatever. Like, like right now, it's all Hell's Kitchen. It's all gay people are just gay everywhere. Ten yes. percent of everybody, guys. Right. I just—whatever. I, it's it, like it's, what, what Joe Nell said, well, there are no gay people in Poison Creek. Right,
1: uh-huh. No, uh, No, there that's not—there
0: are. Not, there are 10 percent of the population in Poison Creek
1: still gay. Sorry. So Matt Foreman from AVP, he says that the de- New Jersey detectives used an iron-fisted approach to questioning people, and they missed out on a lot of tips because of it. So— Um, that says to me they went into the townhouse bar and started bossing people around. And we talked about this with the Billy case because so much of it hinged on the last moments he was seen alive at Rage. If in this time period you go into a gay bar and say who was here, that answer could destroy someone's life still. I mean, here we are talking about a victim who was married. One of
0: the witnesses, one of Billy's roommates, was questioned at the time of Billy's disappearance, and the roommate said, we were at a church picnic, which you know... Did not
1: happen. There are no church picnics in West Hollywood. None. <laughs> right. So um, the, the questioning at the townhouse bar doesn't generate any significant leads in this moment for the Jersey detective. So they focus on the evidence, which is like, wow, there was a lot of evidence included with the body parts. Like a lot. I, the saw that was used to dismember the body, um, all those wrappings, all of which seemed personal and traceable. And some of the items, the gloves that they find and the saw, are traceable to a CVS store on Staten Island. So, Staten put a pin yeah. in the Staten Island. It really, there, map. there was a,
0: all of the evidence led, uh, not all of it, obviously, there's the physical evidence, but the, but the circumstantial evidence led back almost entirely to yeah. Staten Island and a very small
1: area of Staten yes. Island. Yes. There, unfortunately, given the time of, in history this was, there were not a lot of security cameras in any of the stores, so there's no footage. There were none. There, there weren't any security when cameras. When did those start? I was trying to think of that. Like, when did
0: we get security cameras? I have no idea. Like, I think we were jealous of London because they had a bunch, the so we started CCTV. getting some. Yes, yeah, CCTV. But yeah. And then they started putting them in at the 7-Eleven because people just kept coming in and killing all the people who worked at right. 7-Eleven and taking $50 or whatever, so they started putting up a camera as a deterrent, or right. at least the appearance of a camera, um, right. But yeah, that was even that was those really didn't because the problem was the recording. Mm-hmm. Digital recording is surprisingly recent, though we don't we tend to forget that. Like mm-hmm. you had to have videotapes. You had to have eight thousand videotapes, mm-hmm. you know, one after the other that you kept loading into this thing to right. very slowly record. Um, the the cam- So camera monitoring was very challenging.
1: Well, typically what they did even more recently when it was still tape is it just – recorded over itself after a while and you'd go in there looking for archival stuff and they would be like sorry it got junk."
0: yeah that was earlier in the week so it's already
1: been recorded over
0: yeah yeah, there was one or the other neither were particularly effective and yeah they were just we didn't have there was no cameras then
1: they also do not have the ability to lift fingerprints from the trash bags the body parts were found in and the detective goes into the technique that was used then and we'll come back to that yeah put a pin in that so they upload the specifics of the murder to VICAP, which stands for the violent... <laughs> Sorry, you wrote it down. I, I should have spelled it out. I've read so many thriller novels with VICAP. It's a database of crime statistics, and you go and look for cases that have a similar... I think it's Violent Criminal a- Apprehension Program, I like but I don't apprehension know... What... Program. <laughs>
0: Sure the Haitians won't be crazy about it, but I—I I think that's great.
1: Apprehension program, but what does the I stand for? That's what I can't wrap my head around. Why
0: are you not taking the V I?
1: Oh, this is my favorite thing on our podcast when we Google stuff live on the air. ViCap. Someone in their car is screaming. Violent Criminal Apprehension Program. So V I stands for violent. violent. Okay, it's that's what ViCap. Okay. uh they upload the specifics of the murder to VICAP and they find a very similar case from 1991, the year before. This one is in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. The victim's name, uh, no, excuse me, the detective's name, Carl Harnish, he's interviewed. He's a former corporal with the Pennsylvania State Police. The body was found in Dutch country, which doesn't have a lot of uh, homicide detectives. So that's Dutch country is where the Amish live. Uh, they call out the state police. Is it- yeah, that's what he said, Pennsylvania Dutch. That's Amish country. Oh, all right. Yeah.
0: I didn't know that's what that meant.
1: You learned something what did you think it meant? That there well, were Dutch. People? No,
0: I didn't think that, that yeah. I thought that was settled by the Dutch by Dutch people. Like like Ichabod Crane and all of that story. That's about Dutch people.
1: And I think there's a connection and between them and the Amish. New Amsterdam
0: was actually the yeah. name of New York City. So like it doesn't seem like – they're. Not,
1: I don't think there's a big Amish contingent in New York City. You know, I'm not sure if I'm right, so I'm going to ask you to focus. <laughs> <laughs> I think I might be wrong, and so I'm going to act like you, this is an unpleasant diversion. I don't know that, that's, that Amish <laughs> people are
0: Dutch. I uh, will say this. Maybe. I'm, I don't know.
1: I will say this. The Amish played no part in this case, so it's no. just me trying to sound smart. And they don't listen to
0: this – Podcast or podcasts They're, at all, so they'll never know. know.
1: They could be on Rum Springer, they don't have
0: well, they only then would they listen. Yeah. If I was on Rum Springer, this is not what I would be doing.
1: <laughs> I'm on Rum Springer, I can do whatever I want. Find me two old guys with a podcast, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, man. But I think the
0: rest of them don't have a radio or electricity or computers yeah, or if, anything. I, so. All
1: I know about the Amish, I learned from witness.
0: Yeah, that was very informative. I love that
1: movie. Oh, my God. My mother used to sweat when she talked about that movie. Harrison Ford and Keira, s- Kelly McGillis. Very mm-hmm. hot. Very anyway. hot. So uh, the dete- there's a blend here and of people interviewed on audio only and people interviewed by camera. And I always assume after that recent Rock Hudson documentary that what that means is that they just used the author's interview. The author probably conducted their interviews for the book. On audio. Really? Yeah.
0: What I always assume is that they look so bad now that they didn't want to be on television, so they sent in an old photograph and just did a phone interview.
1: <laughs> is that is that why we do a podcast? That's absolutely. <laughs> face for radio, babe. Everyone keeps saying, why aren't you guys on video? And I'm like, have you seen us lately? We're not No, the reason we're not on video
0: is that we haven't figured out how to be
1: on video. Yeah. We will. We'll get back to you on that. Anyway, okay. But not this week. So this what unfolds as they dig into the Pennsylvania case is a very similar story. State uh, maintenance workers, in this case, instead of sanitation workers, find a bag. This particular guy thinks, "God, this bag is heavy." He's trying to clear it out of this. Why can. is this?
0: Why can't I pick up this bag?
1: He opens it and thinks it's a loaf of bread inside, and then he sees the loaf of bread has freckles, which is a detail right out of a horror movie. Jesus Christ. But the body is clean, just like the other one was. There's no blood. There's a big hole in the torso. And the belongings are found a good ways east. And the victim is identified as a man named Peter Anderson. And then all of a sudden, we're in Palm Springs. I mean, I knew the special was going to be gay, but I didn't know it was going to be that gay. And we are interviewing someone from Peter Anderson's past who now lives in Palm Springs. Because if anybody is still alive from the time of this story, except me... They live in Palm Springs. And you spent a lot of time in Palm Springs. A fair amount, yeah. This gentleman is named Tony Hoyt, and he is an old acquaintance of Peter's. And more than that, as we soon learn as he begins to tell his story, they met in 1964. He always found Peter very dapper and dressed to the nines. He always wore a bow tie and he had a round face, and he radiated what Tony calls electricity. So Tony gets married, and he moves to Long Island, and he has kids. Then about six or seven years later, he has a client dinner in New York City. He has too much to drink and misses the last train, and he asks Peter if he can spend the night at his place. And they begin a sexual relationship. But in Tony's words, no words were spoken. The relationship was entirely secret, Peter's job would have been in jeopardy if anybody knew, and Tony was married with children. Yes. So it was truly the love that dare not speak its name. Absolutely, but they had found each other. Um, There is some context about the era that they're living in, in which they make clear that while homosexuality had just been removed from the Register of Psychiatric Disorders, the therapist who advocated for its removal wore a mask at the proceedings to drive home the power of the stigma around it. Absolutely. It was, it was still a pretty divisive topic. So one night in the midst of this relationship, Peter tells Tony that he's going to get married too because he needs a cover. And according to Tony, there was no thought on either of their parts of either one of them ever coming out. Uh, but this decision is what effectively ended their relationship, even though they said it wouldn't. Then in 1991, he sees him at the townhouse in New York City. Tony sees Peter. Tony sees Peter at the townhouse in New York City. Peter, by this time, was living in Philadelphia. And so, um, jumping forward to the murder again in 1991, the cops have gone through his apartment. Uh, They interview a detective named Kevin Dykes about what they found in uh, his place. It was in Rittenhouse Square, which is a really sort of Tony area of Philadelphia. And in in his apartment, they find photographs of him embracing another male in a man a manner, of which I guess they interpreted to be beyond friendly.
0: And they weren't clothed.
1: Oh, I missed that part.
0: That really, that kind of yeah, yeah that, that put a real really, accent on yeah, the, yeah on the on the interpretation of the photo. Yeah, I yeah.
1: mean, I don't know if we have to pull our straight friends for that, but I don't think they do a lot of naked hugging.
0: I don't know, like yeah. haven't noticed
1: that happening in the locker rooms at
0: gyms over the years. Christopher and I, and all of us at TDPS, are still grieving the loss of my dear friend and our beloved premier party person, Anne Rice.
1: But my mother's literary legacy gave birth to a diverse and wonderful community of readers and fans who continue to celebrate her work online.
0: We invite you to join them on the Facebook page dedicated to Anne's legacy. That's where you'll receive the latest updates on new editions of her work and all the exciting changes coming to the AnneRice.com website.
1: Also on the Anne Rice Facebook page, you can join the mailing list to receive all the latest news and information about her forthcoming celebration of life in New Orleans. That's at facebook.com/slash fan page, no spaces.
0: If you believe, as we do, that Anne's work is as immortal as her character's, then join us at Anne Rice Fan Page on Facebook.com.
1: See you there. Eric. Yes, Christopher? Have you been to my website lately? Why would I go to your website? You're sitting right here. Well, it's the place to find out all about my new books. Why would I go to your website for that? Again, you're sitting right here. All right. Well, for people who aren't right here, ChristopherRiceBooks.com is a great place to get information about my new releases.
0: Which you'll give me copies of. Because I'm sitting right here.
1: Yeah, maybe. But for those who aren't currently sitting in our studio on the Sunset Strip, check out my website, sign up for my mailing list, and check out all the posts on my blog where I talk smack about Eric Shaw Quinn. What smack? Shut up and read this new book I wrote. Fuck that and fuck ChristopherRiceBooks.com. This ad did not go as planned. This was an ad? (laughs) So the detectives were not. We've now gone back in time a year from where the special started, and we're focusing on the murder of uh, Peter Anderson. Did I get his name right? Yes, Peter Anderson. So they're tracing his last movements, and it brings them to Tony Hoyt, who is we have been. Uh, he's been interviewed previously, and he said that uh, at this point in the story, he was living in New York and he was editing House Beautiful. There's no specific mention of it, but it sounds like he's left his wife. Um, I wasn't sure. I don't know. A friend of his is hosting a fundraiser on Central Park West. He walks in, and there's Peter checking people in. Uh, they haven't seen each other in years. He had been married twice and even had a child. They went and they had a drink together at the townhouse, but Peter was so intoxicated, the bartender cut him off. So Tony decided to make Peter a reservation at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel, and he put him in a taxi. Um... Robbie Brown, who's the host of the fundraiser, gets called by the Pennsylvania State Troopers. He doesn't know Peter, but he is the one who eventually leads them to Tony Hoyt's door. And as is later revealed, Peter kind of tried to put the moves on one of the doormen at the Waldorf Astoria and got a little grabby, and that was not allowed, so they turned him away. They put him in another cab, and to this day, Tony Hoyt thinks he went back to the townhouse because he was too drunk to remember that he had been turned away. But the Pennsylvania detective still can't prove that he went back to the townhouse. Right. Like nobody, They didn't find any witnesses who saw him at the bar after he was sort of turned away the first time. So the case quickly goes cold. And here's one of the weirdest moments of the special, maybe because the filmmakers just sort of let it hang out there. So the two Pennsylvania detectives, who are Pennsylvania State Police, right? there's this silence. And then off camera, the director says... I think he says, is there anything I haven't asked that you want me to ask? And there's this pause, and then Carl Harnish leans forward and says, why is the emphasis on the gay part? And there's just complete silence. Like, nobody says anything, and it doesn't lead into an interview that seems responsive to that point. So,
0: but it is an interesting point. It is the beginning of the development of a point. Like, I mean, on the one hand... Why is it? Like, somebody was murdered. What difference does it make if he was gay or not? Like, mm-hmm. it should be investigated. And and I hope that is what the detective meant when he said that. But it also leads into the, you know, why do you keep bringing that up? Right. Kind of tone of conversation that also... I think, comes to dominate this case.
1: Well, and I, I should correct myself because what follows is really a kind of montage, if you will, about the collective attitude towards gay people and gay victims in particular yes. in New York City at the time. There's an archival interview with Sam DeMilla, president of the Patrolman's Benevolent Association, who in 1978 says homosexuals are criminals. What do you so want apparently to hasn't
0: looked up benevolent. Yeah,
1: exactly. Uh, we meet Edgar Rodriguez, who was a former sergeant in the New York Police Department Gay Officers Action League, who talks about overhearing horrible things cops I said about mean gay people horrible including a coworker who said that if a cop ever on the force ever came out to him he would find a way to kill him accidentally and make it look like an accident i should say there's a donahue and his who,
0: response to it was well i'm never coming
1: out yeah yeah uh, they hold up a map of Chelsea and the West Village. Dot, excuse me, just the village, dotted with black marks indicating locations of anti-gay incidents in the first nine months of 1991. There are over 600. Um, sorry, I got confused. Hold on a second. Pause. Who's Thomas's wife? We'll just leave that out. Sorry.
0: Isn't that the first victim? Yeah, but it's,
1: it, it's just, yeah. Okay. Let's just pick it up from where I stopped talking. So, and and as the first victim, Thomas's wife tells us, uh, or I guess his daughter tells us in interview, that, that, that she, her mother, became con- uh, committed to not letting the crime be swept under the rug. That even though this was her husband and he was living this secret life that she thought it was important to keep the crime in the spotlight, probably in some kind of response to everything we just described. Yes. Yeah. Less than a year later, the New Jersey state detectives get a call. They're the detectives we met at the beginning of this episode about another dismembered body. And that leads us into episode two of Last Call, which is called Tony. Now, this one started with an anonymous interview that kind of took us to another gay bar, in New York city that had a similar vibe to the townhouse called five Oaks. I I can't remember if there was a payoff to this interview, but yeah, there was, Eric is nodding at me. (laughs) This is what happens when we do four episodes of television in two episodes. Um, so he basically describes going out to the five Oaks, being picked up by a guy, a guy who had a gym bag with him that he thought was maybe a tool bag. Um, he is—the the night is winding down, right? The customers are kind of thinning out in the bar. Yes.
0: And, and it becomes clear from the way the guy is telling the story that the guy he met has drugged him. Yeah. He thinks he's really intoxicated. He starts feeling bad, and the guy's like, oh, yeah. his knight in Shining army's is going to
1: rescue him. Right. Um, he takes him home, right? He takes him to— Back to his own house. To his own house, the the victim who's being interviewed's right. house. Um, and he passes out. Face down on the rug, he says when he is able to turn over and look up that the man who helped him home is staring down at him like, quote, he is a bug under glass. Yes, he's completely unnerved by
0: it. And the guy excuses himself and goes to wash his hands or something, goes to the bathroom or steps away from the immediate scene. And while he's gone, the, the fellow who incidentally is speaking from darkness like mm-hmm. he doesn't reveal his name his identity is yeah. never revealed and he his face is is in darkness so we don't know who this actually is and he says that he reaches over and he unzips the bag mm-hmm. and sees that it has rope and Jesus. stuff in it and so he says this is not good so he manages to pick up the bag and leave the apartment. Oh, my God. He goes back in the hall, and the guy comes out of the apartment and is walking with him towards the elevator, and he throws the bag at the guy, runs back into his apartment, and slams and double locks the door. Oh, my God. And the guy... Tries the knob, tries to get in after him. So he has literally, like, locked himself away from something that he found as a threat. And then he passes out because that's really all the gas he has left in the tank.
1: Yeah, he's been drugged. Right. Absolutely. Later he returns
0: to Five Oaks, not that night, obviously, Mm -hmm. because he wanted to let people know that this had happened to him in that particular setting because those were his friends.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So that interview is kind of presented almost in isolation before we get back to the discovery of another body that, that we ended the last episode with. It's the last episode of this show, not our show. Uh, so it's May 10th, 1993, and a former detective from Ocean County, Jersey named Thomas Hayes is interviewed. He tells us the same story we're getting used to. Male body parts were found in a heavily wooded area. Um They connect the details to the Macaulay murder that started off the series. In both cases, the head is severed, the torso cut into two pieces, the arms and both legs are severed. And they've been
0: stabbed.
1: Yeah. Another detective, Mark Woodfield, is interviewed by audio. He tells us how they lifted a print but didn't get a hit. So they traced the bag the head was in, and wouldn't you know it, it went right back to Staten Island, where we traced the same CVS, or right next door to the CVS that came up with the Macaulay case. And this is when they really realized, without a doubt, they had a serial killer. Totally. The victim's name is Anthony Marrero, and we interview his brother, Jose Luis, who is in a fair amount of denial, even to this day. I mean. Um, he didn't believe—when they came to tell him his brother had been killed, they said it's not possible. He never got into trouble. But he did have a tendency to travel all over the world in nice clothes, and he didn't know where he got his money from.
0: I had no job Yeah, all, and had so. no
1: job. Uh, the family was from— Puerto Rico, uh, the brother thinks he wasn't gay. He just liked to hang out with gay people. Right. Had a lot of
0: gay friends and like he was, but he wasn't gay or bisexual or anything like that. Not Tony.
1: Um, the interesting twist here is they interview Tony's great nephew, Antonio, who is himself a queer man who was in fact thrown out by his parents who are members of this same family, uh, who are devoutly Roman Catholic and, um, he said he has become kind of fascinated with discovering the life that his uncle, or it would be great uncle, right? Did yes. I get that right? Yeah, great uncle led because it's been this family mystery that nobody will talk to him about, right? And now it turns out he's tied up in this serial killer case that a book was written about, and now a Max series. So he's very generous with the interviewers, and um, uh, so. We get we go back into sort of like the chronology of American homophobia and its relationship with religion. If you don't know who Anita Bryant was, consider Good. yourself lucky. What a
0: horrible human being. She I hope somebody terrible. drops a piano on her. I think she's still alive, but... Just a dreadful human being who has a lot to apologize for.
1: She decided an ordinance that would outlaw discrimination against gay people in Miami in the 70s needed to be repealed. And she used bigotry and radical religion to do it. Um, They also said – it's commonly agreed now that her rhetoric led to a rash of anti-gay hate crimes, many of them murders that had elements of overkill in them. Um, They go back to the anti-violence project. No Bullshit B is interviewed – um, they were kind of plugged into the murder of Anthony Marrero because it appeared in the newspapers, and it sticks out from the other crimes because he's younger than the other victims, and he's also a person of color, which right. is, doesn't fit with the other victims we've discussed. What also becomes clear quickly is that he was a sex worker; that the nice clothes were coming from clients. That is that nice clothes. His brother noticed absolutely, yeah,
0: and had addiction issues, and was a very was a much more transient kind of yeah. person than than the other victims of these crimes.
1: Um, his best friend was Cyan Dorishow, who is interviewed. She is described as an activist. Uh, she tells us she was working at the Adonis Theater in the 80s and met him there, and it was an environment that was full of sex. He was turning tricks, but he was also meeting men for just more casual sex. She, uh, the two of them became great friends. Uh, he invited her out to various bars and kind of showed her the scene. Um in order to try to retrace his steps, you have these Jersey detectives going into the Port Authority in New York City, which was... Notorious. Did you have any brush with the Port Authority? Did you walk by it or run by it? I, or... Yeah, it was yeah. It was literally, uh, I think, maybe two or
0: three blocks from my first home in mm. Hell's Kitchen. It was, um yeah, it was notorious. And, like, it was... I was warned off, right off that don't go anywhere. People are there. They will try and assist you and they yeah. will assist you right into trouble. So it was like the place where the naive young thing got off the bus and was a meter pimp. You know yeah, what I mean? Right. It was that kind of environment. It was also a place where a lot of sex work actually took place. Yeah. And that was the case with Tony.
1: Right. And that's what he was doing. Um but it's also not a lot of place where people are going to talk to the cops when they go in there asking questions oh, of a God. homicide. Not victim. even a,
0: at all. But it was the sort of place where people might be seen having sex like in the open. It was it was that kind of Wild West sort of environment. This was the period of time just past when I was there when people, when the police were afraid to go into the subway.
1: Yeah, right.
0: And because that's the kind of Wild West sort of atmosphere that was prevailing in and around Times Square and in the places like the Port Authority. I During the go-go Clinton years and um, Rudy Giuliani's Mm -hmm. only real contribution to humanity (laughs) you know a lot of that got cleaned up i think it had more to do with the the clinton economy than it did rudy Mm -hmm. but he got a lot of credit for it and you know it did happen so it did happen it it saved new york i think in many ways and we lost some of the color and flavor but it was going bad anyway so it was probably time
1: So there's a trend line emerging here in the story we're discussing, which is that you've got a victim now who was all over New York City working as a sex worker. But you've got New York City detectives who, according to both the Anti-Violence Project people who were working these cases at the time and the Jersey cops, the New York detectives were not helping and they were not cooperating. They were doing nothing. Yeah. Yeah. they refused an open invitation. I mean, these are the same
0: people who wouldn't go into the subway,
1: so they're a right. lot of help. Right. And so the anti-violence project, people say the Jersey cops were all over it, but the New York City police were not. Um, eventually the Jersey detectives come across a guy named Carlos Santiago, who was Anthony's close friend. And he's very helpful. He starts directing them to people who were Anthony's clients, a married couple, a man and a wife who would pay Anthony for sex on occasion. And so more leads start to develop in this atmosphere of trust, certainly more than anybody was going to get bustin' heads in the Port Authority. Yes. Um... So the married couple says to the cops that Anthony used to turn tricks around 2nd Avenue and 53rd Street and lo and behold that's fairly close to the townhouse. There we are, which right is out where front, we're connected to our first two victims. Um so Cheyenne, Anthony's friend who's interviewed says one day Anthony like, she didn't know where he'd gone. He just vanished. And she said this was a time in queer life where people just disappeared. Either maybe they went back home, maybe they died of AIDS, maybe they were killed like Anthony was. That, that she did not know anything about what happened to him until the producers of this documentary got in touch with her Texted her. About her. Yeah. The
0: first news that she'd had of Anthony's demise was when the producers texted her. I was really, that just ripped my heart out. Yeah.
1: So we go back to the anonymous interview that started this episode of the series. We go back to that man who hid in his own bathroom until his potential killer, abuser, rapist. Whatever. The strange person who'd been to his
0: house with a tool kit.
1: Uh, And as you mentioned earlier, he went back to the Five Oaks to warn people because he had met the guy there. And he talks about the comfort of familiarity and the fact that people who went to the the regulars were always in the same place at the same time. And in 1993, he went in to issue this warning. And one of his favorite people, Michael, was not on his usual bar stool. And it turns out he was killed. And the last place he was seen was the Five Oaks. And that concludes the second episode of Last Call.
0: And one of the things yeah. that really has comes up during particularly with Cheyenne, but in general around the um the end of the topic is the refusal to see gay people mm-hmm. at any level. If this is a time when gay people are dying of AIDS and the president the immediately previous president at this mm-hmm. point, but um would not say it, would not even say the word, would not address it. The government was not dealing with it. Elizabeth Taylor was, you know, Mm -hmm. like this is a time when these people are being, um, gay people are being attacked and bashed and beaten and, and, um, and in this case killed. And there is no official response from, The police except to say that they're degenerates. That's the benevolent society. Criminals, right view. Criminals of the Mm -hmm. you know, like and so in no way like their behavior is criminal. It is it is the thing that I always used to say, being a gay man who was alive during this time, if you make my behavior against the law, it becomes antisocial behavior. But really It's just behavior like falling in love with people and having getting married and having sex and all of that stuff is just natural human behavior Mm -hmm. unless you make it against the law. It's how the Old Testament and the Bible worked. Like Mm -hmm. they wanted to kill off the Canaanites. So they made all of their practices and behaviors punishable by death so they could kill them because right. it was against the law to right. have long hair or a ponytail or mm-hmm. to cut your um, forelocks or whatever like those things were punishable by death because or eat lobster I guess um mm-hmm. the the dangerous lobster eaters of the the world and it really like this was the the unfortunate commonality mm-hmm. that I found not only were the gay victims being, thrown away like trash mm-hmm. and discovered in garbage pails along the road. But then just like Billy, mm-hmm. but then they were erased. Right. Like yeah. Billy's case, mm-hmm. I heard about it from other people in the community when I moved here, but I didn't see any news reports about it. The The LA Times uh, reporter right. that we talked to was more forgiving Mm -hmm. about it. But I have to say, like, there was very little coverage. And even now, with having come to the conclusion of a 30-year-old cold case, there has still, other than the LA Times article and smaller, more niche, more gay publications, Mm -hmm. there has been no mention of the solving of a 30-year-old cold case in this... And it brings up I, – I, I have to say it. It brings up something that really kind of – when during yes. the pandemic, mm-hmm. Christopher and I were asked to do a pilot for a television series, which apparently is now premiering yes. on, I don't know, some network, um, but right now called yep. Citizen Detective. Right. We were – they actually approached us because we had – at this point, we hadn't—the case wasn't even solved. We were right. just—we had started talking about it on the podcast. Mm-hmm. We, the, the police became involved, and then other members of the community. Ultimately, right. Clark and Rachel, and Rachel yeah. became involved in trying to find some— at least call attention to this yes. long-neglected, long-forgotten, hideous murder of this mm-hmm. poor young man. Um. So we— Against, I mean, we were terrified because it, it was— it was, the,
1: it was the depths of the pandemic. It was another surge in cases here in L.A., and there were no vaccines yet. And we didn't want to shoot this. That, we didn't want to go out. and We had, weren't leaving our homes. We were working from home. But we were—the with the production company said, we're really committed to this. Our interests are aligned. We want to make a show that's about queer victims. Like, we were really talked into it. And, and we it went was, out and we and shot it. And the
0: production company that was behind it was yeah. the, a group called World of Wonder who have right. made— I'm going to say, judging from uh, RuPaul's House in Architectural Digest, they have made their fortune Mm -hmm. on producing Drag Race Mm -hmm. um, at at this particular company. So we felt like we were partnering with people who would be – would take a sensitive view of this topic, and more than that, we thought that it might help call attention right. to Billy's case because at this point,
1: nobody had I've, gotten in touch with us. Yes, so the police had not reached out. We Rachel hadn't. We had, we had not talked. We didn't know Clark Williams yet. This like, was this us was talking early, early. about. This yeah. was
0: us talking about the case. Yeah. I, I I don't know. I'll I'll go with you on those yeah. those facts. So we we put it all together, and then you know, it's television and it's a tough business. And so nothing happened and we didn't really hear anything. We would talk periodically to the producers who, whatever, Mm -hmm. I mean, they never even paid us, you know, like Mm -hmm. the the contract just sort of fell apart. Just that whatever we had signed, whatever agreement we had signed with them, they never even lived up to their side of it. We were never paid. So, and like I say, we did it to call attention to, to the Billy's thing. So it didn't seem like a very big deal until recently when we saw that, the show was actually coming on the air
1: without our episode anywhere in the season or any mention. Not of only Billy. were we not the they erased Billy from the entire season; he's not in there.
0: They erased the yeah. gay people from the show. Yeah, the the people who produce Drag Race mm-hmm. erased the gay people from the show. And I'm not sure at whose behest, but they still did it. Mm-hmm. And this is the problem here in this case that we're talking about at, at HBO. It's the problem. Representation is important. Being, mm-hmm. even in this stuff, like if you don't know that people are being, like 600 people in the first six months of this, that 1991 in New York, were 600 gay people were assaulted right in the city of New York. And the, 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 The officials, the the police, the people who are supposed to be charged, were doing nothing about it. This Mm -hmm. case with Billy languished for 30 years because partly because of probably a bad relationship between Mm -hmm. the community and the police. The the leads dried up and because nobody was talking about it, which Mm -hmm. is all that Christopher and I could do and we tried to. And now having done so as the ultimate band of citizens detectives... (laughs) Not only are we being ignored by media in general, we haven't heard from Dateline or
1: Mm
0: -hmm. um, any of the shows that we talk about or the New York Times or any Mm -hmm. other publication other than one reporter from the L.A. Times um, who didn't even take our picture.
1: Yeah, Um, that was okay. Didn't even include our picture
0: in the uh, the article, which, once again, more about Billy Mm -hmm. than us. So, okay, survivable. And now— the people that we actually partnered with to make this show about this, even with the fact that we that we, with the help of these other people and the LAPD, closed a 30-year-old cold case, got cut from yeah. the show and erased. Mm-hmm. This is what keeps happening <laughs> with with gay people. Right. I just think this is a really glaring, sharp. Um, example Mm -hmm. of a really really bad trend and it is it's a creation of the problem when you have people on the other side shutting down making laws against being gay Mm -hmm. being trans um,
1: banning books banning uh,
0: uh, drag queens who are Mm -hmm. doing good works in the community Banning books, banning – trying to shut up speech, n- refusing to allow people to even mention the possibility of gay in schools, even though they can talk about all of the straight sex and pregnancy and mm-hmm. marriage and everything else they want to talk about. Yeah. like, And at the same moment, this group, these people who we worked with erased this series, mm-hmm. this this premiere, this pilot that we – Endangered our lives mm-hmm. at a very minimal level, mm-hmm. but we're willing to risk our lives to film. Yeah, and it's not never going to air. I guess I mean
1: nobody is. We, we haven't f- heard anything. We so, found yeah.
0: out that this was happening from the media.
1: From a press release about the show, which listed show all the, all of the episodes, and I thought I kept thinking, well, we were not the pilot. And I kept reading down. I was like, oh my God, we're not even in the show at all. Nothing. Oh my God. Billy is not in the show.
0: Not a word about Billy. Not at all. Yeah. And that's what they were up against. I mean, if this Mm -hmm. is 2023, imagine what they were up against at the time of trying to solve these crimes. So next week, Mm -hmm. we have episodes three three and and four of Last Call. And the amazing, I mean, surprise, jaw dropping. Yeah, um, turn of events. That is, in fact, the finale of the series. So, mm-hmm. whew, sorry, sorry to get yeah, on my soapbox, but it really, yeah. I have blood in my eye about that. It just yeah. really, it just really is unbelievable to me. It hurt my feelings, mm-hmm. but it also really got my ire. Oh on. yeah, I, me too. Me too. Honestly, I just, I, I'm so sick of this. Is this is when I go off about things like turning a gay, a, a historical gay figure into mm-hmm. a straight person on that fucking Da Vinci code thing or whatever Mm -hmm. the hell it was called. Da Vinci's
1: demons. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Like, this is what that kind of erasure leads to.
1: Right. Like, if
0: gay people are not even important enough to report truthfully about in history, why bother to talk about it when somebody is chopping them up, putting them in garbage bags and tossing them in trash bins along
1: the side of the road? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I'm, I'm right there with you, brother. Anyway. Anyway. Until next time and forever after, we are never shutting up. We are Chris. Never. This is Christopher <laughs> and Eric. I don't know if that's how we usually end our show, but it's an unconventional ending because we are fired up. And we will be back on the next. How do we end our fucking show? I forgot. Until next time and, and forever, forever after, after, I'm Christopher Rice. And I'm Eric Shaw Quinn. And you've been listening to TDPS Presents Christopher and Eric. Thanks. This is TDPS.